Well, this morning we continue our series on prayer. And we get to that section now where we have to talk about how to do it. Last week we talked about what uh, prayer is a little bit. We talked about the invitation that God has given us to come to Him in prayer. God loves to spend time with His kids. We get to call Him Father, which is a big deal, as we'll discover this morning. And that's what prayer is. It's personal, intimate time between you and your Heavenly Father. Now, i got to tell you right from the start, I'm not really into how-to messages, you know? I think a lot of how-to messages have been done over the last 15, 20 years, and then how-to books have followed those how-to messages. And before you know it, you get a formula. You create a methodology. When in actuality, prayer should be as natural to you and I as breathing is. And after this week of being as sick as I was, I'm so thankful that I can breathe once again properly, I'll tell you. It should come that natural to you and I. So when we begin this process, I had to ask myself the question, what's the best way to help and demonstrate how to pray to the people? There are those, like the disciples who will discover, who had the sincere question, Lord, how do we pray? Teach us how to pray. In all sincerity. They simply wanted to know how to approach God. And I think that's a good question. I think that question deserves to be answered. Dean and I were faced with that same challenge when it came to raising our daughter. Believing that as her parents, it's our responsibility to train her up in the way of the Lord. To help her each step of the way. And we wanted to show her how to pray. Now, your first resort and your first temptation might be, well, let me teach her a prayer. No, I don't want to teach her a prayer. I want to teach her how to pray. It's a big difference. And I'm a little concerned with some of the prayers that we use to start off this process in helping our children learn how to pray. I don't know how any Christian-loving parent can go to their child and say, Here, honey, here's how you pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. For if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now if I would have taught that prayer to my daughter, and she would have been there with her little hands folded, and began to pray, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Because if I should die... Before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. My daughter would have never gone to sleep. What do you mean, Dad? I'm going to die? What's up with this? No wonder our kids are terrified, man. What is up with that? So we didn't want to teach our children how to just simply uh, say a prayer. We wanted to teach them how to pray. So how do you do that? Well, Dean and I took the most natural course that we could possibly find, and that is that we simply, simply allowed her to pray with us. And it was one of the most fun, enjoyable times I remember with my daughter. She would sit there on the couch, and she'd hear her mom and dad pray, and we'd pray for people, and we would pray for different situations and scenario and so forth. And then it came to her turn, and she was finally ready to do it. And you should have seen her. Holy cow. She prayed for every one of her stuffed animals to get saved. (laughs) 
and to be healthy. It was incredible. But to see her desire to do that, and she still prays to this day because she saw mommy and daddy pray. Now when the Lord is being asked by the disciples, how shall we pray? The disciples have already gotten a glimpse in how they should pray because they've seen him give prayer a large prominence in his own personal life. Jesus would often be with them during the entire day. And then at night, he'd simply break away, go to a private place, and he'd begin to pray. And though that prominence didn't get really instilled in them and wasn't really demonstrated in them until the book of Acts, until the Lord went and was ascended into heaven, they had that role model. We, as parents, need to be role models for our children. If we want them to be uh, people of prayer, we need to be people of prayer. They need to see it in us. They need to see the prominence of it in our lives. But Jesus did answer their question. And he gave them a template in which they may use to pray by. You and I know it as the Lord's Prayer, and that's one of the worst titles for it ever. Because the Lord could have never prayed this prayer. Because the Lord never sinned, he could have never asked for forgiveness of sin. Better yet, it should be called the disciples' prayer. It's the way you and I pray. It's a great template for us to know and to follow in our personal daily prayer lives. So he answers the question for them, how to pray. Now, I was curious. I went to Amazon and I looked and found the number of books that were on either the subject of how to pray or had in their title, How to Pray. There have been almost 70,000 books written that Amazon currently carries on the subject of prayer. And yet, most pastors across the United States of America say that the personal prayer life, the personal dedication to prayer, is at an all-time low. You know what this tells me? Once again, it demonstrates to me that we've got a ton of information and very little application. We want to know how to do it, but we're really not interested in doing it. It's kind of like dieting. Everybody knows that dieting is a good thing to do. They need to lose a couple pounds. They need to get healthy, so on and so forth. So they read all the books. You go to their house, and in the kitchen, they have all the books on how to prepare a a proper meal and so forth. And you're pretty impressed until you discover they know so much about nutrition, but they don't practice any of it. And they're always the first ones to tell you, man, that diet just didn't work for me. Maybe it's because you didn't do it, you know. You can't just read the book while you're pounding down McDonald's, you know. I read these diet books in the time it took for the pizza guy to get to my house. You know, I don't know why it's not working. I mean, that's the same way we approach prayer. We know how to do it. We know it's important. We know it should always be the first course of action and never the last resort, and yet we simply just don't do it. When we first you know, launched this series and I was talking to some of the guys, I told them just you know, very frankly and candidly, how do we pray? Just do it. There you go. How do we pray? Just do it. Let's pray. Because that's really what it boils down to. So I want a little commitment from all of you. We're not going to learn just how to do it. We're going to do it. We're not going to learn just a prayer. We're going to learn how to pray. All right?
Are we all on the same page? All right. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And here we find, once again, we are being instructed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ directly. And in Luke's account of this, or in a parallel account, or in a maybe a, a further account of this scenario, we find that the disciples approach Jesus and say, hey, how, how do we pray, man? No, they didn't say man. That was the new Eric version. But they came to him in, in a very sincere manner. How do we pray? Now, you have to understand something about this concept of prayer that was so new to them. But it's imperative that you and I know and understand this if we're truly going to understand prayer. And that is this. That for them, prayer was a very sacred thing. Prayer was practiced in the temple of God there in Jerusalem. So location was important. They reverenced the name of God so highly that they wouldn't even spell it out and therefore they wouldn't say it properly. They would uh, alleviate any vowels from the word itself. And, and they, they didn't even want to speak the name in, in, in fear that in some way them doing so would bring a lack of reverence to God. So understand, this is a new concept to them. Jesus, we see you break away. And you go and pray to the Father. And we have the examples of the religious leaders and how they pray. Is that right? Is that what we should be doing? We see them at three times a day, at nine in the morning, twelve noon, and three o'clock. Wherever they are, they stop and pray. And often they do it in a very pious manner. Wherever the religious leader was at that time, wherever the Pharisee was at that time, they would just simply stop and begin to pray. And often it was very orchestrated. They would have a pre-written prayer. And they would just happen to find themselves in the most public places in Jerusalem. And then they would stand there in their pomp and circumstance and they would begin to pray. Lord, is that the way you'd have us to do it? But then we see the Gentiles, and when we are learning of them, and when they pray, they do it in a very interesting way. They say the same thing over and over and over again in vast repetition in hopes that their God would hear them and respond to them. Is this how we should pray? So before he actually demonstrates this template for us of prayer, he answers those two questions. By basically saying, don't do this, do this. Or don't do this, know this. Let's begin in verse 5. Jesus speaking. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now who are these hypocrites? As we are in Matthew's Gospel, we will discover that the hypocrites were the term that was most used to describe and to label or characterize the religious leaders of the time, the scribes, the Pharisees, and so forth. For they, that is the hypocrites, love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father 
who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first aspect of prayer is a warning. Don't be like the hypocrites. The religious leaders of that time, we will discover, were simply that. They were religious leaders. Many of them had no heart for God whatsoever, but they had the robes, they had all the garments, they had the places of prominence and position within the society. They were well known by the people. Many of them were famous. Most of them were extremely wealthy. But Jesus indicts them time and time again for limiting the access into the kingdom of God. Warning and rebuking, saying, hey, not only do you, the religious leader, not go into heaven, but neither do the people who follow you. And these people, in a very hypocritical way, would stand there on the street corners, the most public places of the market. They would raise their hands so they would draw everyone's attention onto themselves. And they would begin these lofty prayers to God. And the people would stand around them and go, Ooh, ah, oh, he's something, ain't he? He's using such big words, I don't even know what they mean. That's impressive. You know who wasn't impressed in this whole arrangement? God. God was like, no way. And he calls them hypocrites for doing so. They had their reward by the accusations of the people around them. Praising them and glorifying them for their prayer. But what does he tell us to do? It's interesting because all the way up until that one use of the word you, everything is plural. In verse 5, when you all pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward, but when you pray, singular, now it becomes personal. He says, go into your room. That room is a very specific room in the Greek. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here is where most of this teaching is lost. What was not meant to be a public display was meant to be a very private experience. God is looking for intimacy within His prayer time with you. He wants to know about you. He knows everything about you. He just wants you to come to Him and spend time with Him. But he wants it to be very personable. He wants it to be a very intimate thing between you and him. We are not doing it for the attentions of others. I've been to those prayer meetings. Trust me, I've been to them. And I always seem to get sat next to the person who is about to become an example of what not to do. And I'm always the person who has to pray next. One of the very first prayer meetings I was ever in as a young believer in Jesus Christ, the young man who went before me stood up literally in the middle of the prayer meeting, raised his hands to God and just began this, I can't even, a verbal explosion onto God with all of these fancy words and of course in the King James only. And he began to talk to God like this. Now here's me, just recently saved, okay? Wearing my leather jacket in church with my long hair. 
And he's, you know, he's just going off and he's, he's praying for all of these things and he starts asking you know, for God to give him trials and troubles and temptations that he may be more like God. I'm like, man, I don't even want to be near you when that happens. <laughs> I'm just this new guy. And then all of a sudden it came to my turn. Pass. No. I just said, Lord, I'm so thankful that you save a kid like me. Amen. And I went up to the pastor afterwards. I said, listen, I didn't even know what to say after that. And then he showed me in the Bible that, that example of the religious individual standing before God in his own self-righteousness and piety, and then the person next to him saying, whoa, forgive me for the sinner that I am. God showed me humility in that experience. It's meant to be a very private thing between you and God. The health of any collective time of prayer within any church is only dependent on the strength of the personal prayer lives of the individuals. Bring me together with people who have dynamic prayer lives privately, and we'll have a dynamic prayer time publicly. Bring me to those prayer meetings that people have dynamic prayers in public but have no prayers in private and we're going to see a show that I don't think God is going to be pleased with. We are not looking to impress others. We are looking for the attention of our Father. We are not looking for the attention of others. We are looking for the attention of our Father when we come to pray. And what we do in secret, God will reward openly. What we do privately, God will reward publicly. And I really truly believe that our doing this will show us truly where our hearts are at. Let's talk about this room that Jesus speaks about here. In our English, we don't have varying words for the word room like they did in their vocabulary. This was a specific room of the house. The best parallel that I could give you would be a storage closet. Why would God say, go to your storage closet and pray? In our house, the closet's the last place that I would ever consider going to pray. The storage closets at that time were very special to the people. Do you know why? It is these storage closets that held the treasures of that person. So go into that room and pray. And Jesus is saying this. Go into your place where your treasures are and pray and you will have treasures in heaven. That's what he's saying here. I pray that our storage closets may be empty and that the only time that they are filled it's with the prayer of his people. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we must not lose that perspective. Don't be like the hypocrites who look for the attention of others. Look to be that one who speaks privately to God and looks for only their father's attention. In verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you're in need of before you ask Him. 
Speaking first of the religious example that they had there in Judaism, he then goes to the Gentile perspective on prayer. The ESV does a fantastic job by identifying the Greek word for empty phrases by preceding it with a clarifying word, and that word is heap. Do not heap up for yourselves empty phrases like the Gentiles do. What is he saying here? This is an example of a don't do this, but know this. Sometimes we have a don't do this, but do this. Here we have a don't do this, but know this. And what we are to know is that God knows what we are in need of before we ever ask anything from him. What was he trying to communicate to the people when he said that and he made that statement? Well, there were those communities outside of Israel. All the rest of the known world were called Gentile communities. And they had a plethora of different gods that we've talked about. But these individuals had to do something special to get their God's attention. Their gods really didn't care about those, their, the people in their idea and understanding of the relationship between deities and, and man. So the man or the woman who went to that pagan god had to do something to get that god's attention. So they would show their devotion by just heaping up for themselves empty phrases, one sentence after another, and just praying it numerous amounts of times. Why? In hopes that they would elevate themselves to a place where they would get and gain their God's attention. But also that that attention then would provoke a some type of response and intercession on that God's behalf. Think about that for a moment. And this is what the Gentiles needed to do to try to get their God's attention. They tried over and over and over again. But they never ever seemed to get their God's attentions. Why? Because those gods don't exist. So don't do this, but know this. And what are they to know? They are to know that your Father in heaven knows what you are in need of before you ask. Years ago, when Autumn was still very young, one of the things she used to hate that I do to her when we play the ignore game, where I would just ignore her for a minute. And she would just do everything she possibly can to try to get my attention. She would stand in front of me and wave like this, you know. She would do anything she possibly could. And one time, when I was coming down the hallway, she grabbed a stool, put the stool in the hallway, stood on top of it, so now we're almost looking eye to eye, and she goes, wait, to get my attention. That's what I see here in this text of these people trying to get their God's attention. Of course, I was just playing with my daughter. I was having fun. Eric, the ignore game is fun? Well, yeah, sometimes you've got to ignore them. You know. But I, I saw that. I see that in this text, and I'm like, these people had no hope in ever, these gods ever hearing of them, because they don't exist. I love that example, and you can read it on your own, of the point in the history where Elijah and the prophets of Baal went head to head. You find it in 1 Kings chapter 18, and turn there with me. This is one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament. They wanted to determine whose God was the true God. And there were all of these prophets of Baal, about 400 of them. 
Baal was the pagan god of that time. A god that did not exist only in the minds and the hearts of the people who followed him. And then there was Elijah. And they wanted to settle the argument once and for all. So they both proceeded to two different mountaintops, which was the standard place of worship at that time. Two altars were created. But the God who was true would be the God who lights the altar so the sacrifice could be made and given unto him. So here we have on one mountaintop over here in the black trunks, we have the 400 prophets of Baal. They have built their altar. They are just waiting for Baal to now light the flame. Over here in the white trunks, we have the prophet Elijah. His altar is built and they are waiting for God to ignite it. So the toss of the coin had been rendered and it was the prophets of Baal who were to go first. So Elijah just sat back and waited. And notice what they had to do to try to get their God's attention. In verse 26 of chapter 18, the prophets of Baal, they took the bull that was given them They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and there was no answer. And they limped about and around, meaning that they jumped about and they uh, danced about the altar that they had made, in hopes that, that's what they're saying here, in hopes that they get their God's attention. And when it finally came to noon and Elijah had enough of waiting, Elijah did what every good Christian would do. He mocked them. I'm kidding. Saying, I can just imagine Elijah yelling from the other mountaintop, Cry out loud, for he is a God, right? Maybe he can't hear you. Now either he's musing, and then listen to what he says here, or he is relieving himself. He's going to the bathroom. But obviously he's not listening to you. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. You've got to love Elijah. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with the sword and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the obligation. But there was no voice, no one answered, No one paid attention. I love verse 30. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as it would contain two sheaths of seed. And he put wood in order, in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Now fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And he did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. 
and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of the obligation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have all, I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you are the Lord and that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And listen, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophet of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishron and slaughtered them there. Elijah didn't have to wave his hands. Elijah even made it more difficult. Pour all that water on top of the altar, and my God's still going to light it. And once and for all, the people knew there at that time that God was the God of Israel. It is that God that we serve today. It is this God who says, I know what you are in need of before you even come and ask. It is this God now that allows us to call him Father through Christ. So when we come, we don't have to heap up all of these words. God knows what you're in need of before you ask. And now you may be asking yourself a rational question. If God knows what I am in need of before I ask, why is it pertinent that I ask God at all for anything? Because as you do ask God, and you do it in that private place that no one else has heard, no one else has seen, and then God answers that prayer, you have the assurance that God hears and God is there and God cares. I can't tell you the number of times that Dina and I have prayed together for something that no one else had known about. And God answered that prayer so specifically that we were awestruck by the fact that the God of the universe, the God of all creation, that we can now call Father through Christ, heard us, knew what we were in need of before we were in need of it. We spoke to him on it, and then he provided it. There's only one reaction to that, and that is to fall on your knees and say, God, thank you. Ponder this for a moment. It is incredible to think that the creator of the universe, the almighty God who knows every star by name, would care about us. And not only does he care about humanity as a whole, but he also cares about us as individuals. Not only does he care about us as individuals, but he also knows about every detail of our lives. God knows the very thoughts that we think. And Jesus said, your father knows the things that you are in need of before you ask of him. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 45, tell us, tells us, I should say, many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Or the psalmist went on to write in Psalm 115.12, the Lord has been mindful of us, he will bless us.
So even when our family and our friends have forgotten about us, know this, the Lord is thinking about you. The Lord cares about you. He is interested in the, even the smallest details of your life. They might seem trivial to someone else, but to God they are not. If you have concerns, then it concerns Him also. Ponder that. The God of all creation, the God who has made everything, knows you so well that He knows what you are in need of before you ask. I don't know what your life has been like up until this point. And when you hear something like this, you may be like, but I went through some times that I just can't imagine that God was there with me during those times. And if He was with me, how come He didn't see me through it? How come He he didn't uh, alleviate them? How come He didn't uh, free me from them? We all have experiences like that in life. I have them too, where I've asked those questions where I didn't have answers immediately. But I say to you this morning, you are here today because of those circumstances. Those circumstances have been stepping stones in your life to bring you today, which may be your appointment with God, to hear these things, to now discover for maybe the first time that God cares. And God has brought you to this place that you may hear this one fact, that through Jesus Christ you may call the God of all the universe Father. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I prayed in the past, Pastor, and God didn't do anything. Was He your Father? Did you even confess that you believed in Him? Do you know Him personally? Does He know you personally? Did you come to him and say, forgive me of those things that I have done, those sins that have separated me from you? And by faith, I just trust in Christ and for what he has done for me to come to you now. All the experiences of life that you had have brought you to this place today. I can't tell you the number of people who told me have told me in their lives, they've cried out to God and God just hasn't heard them. And then yet I tell them when they're telling me this, he heard you enough to bring you here today. And what he would have me say to you is this, that Jesus Christ is his only begotten son. And that if you were to believe in him, though you may die, you shall live. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. Put your faith and trust in Christ. And therefore you can be confident that you can call him Father And these promises that he is making to his kids will be a promise that he can make to you. So as we come now to learn how to pray, I think it's very clear that God is showing us and demonstrating us what not to do in these first few verses. In verse 9, he changes direction. And he says, then pray like this. He's giving us an example, a template. It is not wrong to pray these actual words. Many do, but he's giving us more of a template to guide and to lead us by. As we have stated that this is not necessarily the Lord's prayer, for the Lord could never pray these things because the Lord had never sinned. It was an example for you and I. It is not meant to be filled with empty words. It's not meant to be prayed in hypocrisy. 
It's, may, it's meant to be fulfilled and filled with words of sincerity. And as we begin here, we discover that this prayer is actually divided into two separate sections. One of the sections has to do with God and our acknowledgement of Him. And the second section has to do with praying for our own personal needs. As we begin here, Jesus Christ for the very first time is introducing something that is so astonishing that I'm sure that many at this point in the instruction ceased listening. He says then, pray like this, Our Father in heaven. Now please understand, historically we have no evidence that anyone outside of Christ himself up until this point addressed God as Father. It was something that they weren't going to do. They didn't have that relationship with him. I'm not going to go up to a stranger that I don't know, some older gentleman, and say, Dad, be pretty weird, right? Be lock that guy up. They never felt that they could have this freedom. They never felt that they could enjoy such intimacy with God. And yet now here, Jesus is clearly demonstrating to them, our Father in heaven. There's something very intimate about the first portion. And there's something extremely majestic about the second. It's not our Father here on the earth. It's our Father who is in heaven. It's a term that is used over and over in the Bible to allow an individual to know that God is sovereign over all the universe. And though He is sovereign and He is mighty and He is God, Jesus attaches this prefix to say He is also our Father. Being adopted by my parents helped me understand a little bit more and to appreciate, I think, a little bit more my adoption into Christ. I love my parents and I'm so thankful for them. And I hope soon my father will join us as believers in Jesus Christ as my mom has last year after 28 years of prayer. But there are times that I was glad that I could call myself adopted. And there were times where I did silly things and my dad goes, see, this just once again demonstrates that you were adopted because I never would have done such a thing. And one day coming home, I pull up in my car and there's my father outside cutting the grass. And for some reason, my father felt that cutting the grass was a time to show how fashionably impaired a person can actually be. He had a white hat, brown shirt, plaid shorts, black socks, and white shoes. And as I walked up, I said, God, thank you that I'm adopted. And I don't have to worry about those fashion nightmares. But I've been adopted by God of all the universe. You who are in Christ have been adopted by the God of all the universe. And you can say to Him, Our Father who art in heaven. That's a fantastic reality for a believer in Jesus Christ. It's, it's something that we should all embrace and begin our prayer with this personal understanding. The sovereign God over all the universe 
is our Heavenly Father. As one wrote this, Our Father who art in heaven, it is hard for us to grasp the significance of that statement, especially in days like today. Back in the days when Jesus gave it, this was a revolutionary thought to the call of God to be able to call God your Father. The Jews feared God and they attached such sacredness to His name that they wouldn't even utter it. In fact, when Jesus referred to God as His Father, they accused Him of blasphemy. But God was and has opened to us a new and living way. And we too can call God our Father. But in the very next statement, we are then confronted with the reality of the hallowedness of His name. This is the ultimate act of worship to understand who God is and His perfection and His holiness. He says, hallowed be thy name. Again, something that we don't necessarily wrestle with today is something that was very mindful of the people back then. Children were very conscientious of the fact that if they did something of a disgrace, it would reflect upon their parents. And they didn't want to dishonor their mother and father in such a way, so they often would do the right thing because they didn't want to bring dishonor to the parents. We as Christians need to hallow His name. And what do I mean by that? We need to understand who He is. We understand the privilege now of calling Him our Father, the sovereign God of all the universe. We through Christ can call Him our Dad. But hallowed be His name. I don't want to do anything in my life that would dishonor God. I don't want to do anything that would bring reproach upon His name. I was sickened this week when I learned and discovered that in the the unveiling hacking of Ashley Madison's website, a website created to allow people to find extramarital affairs. That's what this whole website is about. How to have an affair on your spouse. When the list of clientele was exposed they found that 400 American and Canadian pastors were on that list. We should be ashamed of ourselves, man. This is our God we're talking about. This is the one who sent His only begotten Son to die in the manner that we may be saved. And this is the way we're going to honor Him? Going out of our way to look for an affair to have on our wife? On our husbands? This is sick. We need to wake up hallowed be your name, we are going to say this, God, I don't want to do anything that's going to cause you grief. I don't want to do anything that's going to dishonor your name. I don't want to do anything at all that would do such a thing. That's what he's saying here. As one wrote, he said, hallowed be your name is the reality of worship. I praise the Lord. I glorify the Lord. The word hallowed means to set apart. Be your name. Maybe in your home you have certain silverware that you set apart for special guests or dishes that you use for someone of honor. That is a set apart for special things. In the same way, 
when I say hallowed be your name, I am saying, Lord, your name is to be set apart. It is holy. It is set apart for all who practice practical purpose. When I say hallowed be your name, I am saying, Lord, I want to live a set apart life for you in Christ. This is the beginning of prayer. This is the way Jesus was instructing us. This is the way Jesus was bringing us to an understanding. And then he brings us to the next aspect of it. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we are talking about his kingdom, we are talking about the establishment of the kingdom of God here on this earth, which will occur at the return of Jesus Christ. And though this prayer is multifaceted, it begins with that reality that one day Christ is going to return and is going to reign here on this earth. That's a hope of the Christian faith. Secondly, it's a personal request. You are asking for the rule and reign of Christ in your own personal life. Not only are you looking forward to one day Him ruling physically, but you want to begin that process today by Him ruling in your heart practically from this point going forward. And number three, it is a request for the salvation of those who do not yet know the Lord. It is an evangelistic prayer. One way God's kingdom is brought to us on earth is... Each time another person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This beginning portion of this template focuses me on God and His purposes and His plans, doesn't it? There's not a whole lot of room for me there at that point. Our Father who art in heaven is an acknowledgement of who He is and how glorious He is. Hallowed be thy name is that your name is so revered in my life that I want to bring no dishonor for it. I want to be separate for you and your purposes. Your kingdom come, not my will be done, right? Your kingdom come, not my will be done. And therefore, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The beginning of any healthy prayer starts with this perspective. That is where we shall begin in our personal time of prayer. As Warren Wiersbe said, and I close, the purpose of prayer is to glorify God's name and to ask for help to accomplish His will on earth. This prayer begins with God's interest, not ours, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. As Robert Law once wrote, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. We have no right to ask God for anything that will dishonor His name, delay His kingdom, or disturb His will on earth. There have been over 70,000 books written on prayer. And if the Christian church in America would just begin with this first principle that we saw in these first uh, set, of, set of the template, we would have a completely different perspective, wouldn't we, as Christians here in America? You know what this says? It's all about Him and not about me. That when I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, I became that, a servant of Jesus Christ. And though God loves to bless His kids, and He does so abundantly often, it must remain all about Him. If you are here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, here is what I'll say to you. You have no idea what you're missing. You have no idea at what you're missing. There is an element to this that I cannot even explain to you. It would, be, it would be like me trying to attempt to explain to someone who has been blind from birth what the color blue looks like. I can't do it. 
But I will tell you this, how much you're missing out. God loves you. God cares about you so deeply. And he demonstrated that love through the sending of his son. That whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Where are you at with God? Is God a reality in your life? When you come and you pray and you seek God, do you say with confidence, our Father? Do you say with confidence, my Father, who art in heaven? That's where it must all begin. The reason we enjoy these things is because we can enjoy them through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He himself was God and is God. And he paved the path, though being it very narrow, those who find it will discover eternal life. He is a breath away. If you will call upon his name, confess your sin, and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be his and you will be saved. And then our Father takes on a brand new meaning.